All right, it's about uh, three after start time, which is on par for, for my timeliness with the show. Uh, figure it's a good time to get started. This is Colin Schatz. I'm Seth Partnow. I'm joined today by someone I have been trying to get on literally since I started the show. Um, <laughs> was one of the first people I asked to come on, and she has been uh, demurring and declining and putting me off for months and months and months, but I finally got her. Um, uh, Brittany Donaldson, uh, thanks for joining me, Brittany. Hey, thanks for having me. I wish I could uh, disagree with what you just said, but it's all true, and I apologize for that. But I'm happy to be here finally. <laughs> I mean, there, there were there were good reasons. Yeah. For, but uh, but uh, it, it's good to have have you on now, and uh, it's always good to talk to you. Um, the reason I wanted to have you on is I think you have among the most unique set of experiences of anyone I know working in basketball. So. Um, Rather than me try to summarize, um, why don't I just, you know, ask the dreaded talk about so <laughs> question. So, um, can you, you know, what is your what is your your kind of your life story and background in basketball? Yeah, for sure. I'll try to keep it as uh, concise as possible. But um, so I grew up in Iowa playing, you know, basketball, competitive basketball at a very young age. Um, ended up playing collegiately at. University of Northern Iowa, which is smaller D1 school um, in Iowa, and played there for four years. Um, had aspirations to play professionally, but unfortunately underwent four knee surgeries. So um, by the time my senior year came around, really had to evaluate, like, what do I want to do with my life? Because up until that point, I just I wanted to be a basketball player. Um, I happened to be studying statistics and actuarial sciences at the time, and to be honest, I had no real plan with that. Um, I was really just, uh, I decided on that major because math came very easy to me, um, and I knew I'd be missing a lot of classes because I'd be traveling with basketball. I'm like, oh, let's just choose something that would be, um, for me, you know, easy to keep up on when I'm not in class all the time, which a lot of people laugh at the idea that that was what I chose. Um, <laughs> but... So I decided, you know, when I was done playing, um, I didn't decide, actually. Somebody told me, like, hey, did you know that this sort of sports analytics movement is happening right now, particularly in baseball? And it was actually one of my professors. He was like, I notice every project we do, you always choose to use sports data or sports-related data or analyze some sort of sports question um, with all these school projects. Like, have you ever considered going into the sports analytics world and I, I had no idea that existed you know so I was like this is awesome this is like the coolest thing I've ever heard this is absolutely what I want to do with my statistics degree um, decided early on I didn't want to be an actuary and work at an insurance company so um, started applying for so many jobs anything I could find that was in the sports domain and had the word analyst in the title um, primarily applying for baseball jobs because like I said you know it's bigger in baseball at the time. Moneyball had just come out, you know, five years before that or whatever. So um, that's where I thought I was headed. And turns out I actually ended up at Stats LLC in Chicago. It's now Stats Perform. Um, as a, at first I was more of like a quality analyst for their sport view product, the player tracking product. Um, so I was working, you know, overnight shifts, um, basically clicking on feet, watching NBA games through these sport view cameras, making sure everything was tagging correctly and that the data was clean. Um, and that was that was an interesting time in my life. You know, I was not making very much money, living by myself in Chicago, working these like crazy hours, not sure where I was going to go. And um, 
Charlie Rolfe, who I, I deem my angel in my life, <laughs> um, who was at the time working at Stats. He's in the NBA league office now as director of technology, but he kind of swooped me up from the sport view operations room and said, Hey, like you're overly qualified for this job. Like you have an actual statistics degree, you know, you know, a little bit of coding. Like, why don't you come over to, to my side, the product side and help me build reports and sell this product to NBA teams. And I'm like, cool, sweet. Um, so I spent some time um, at Stats, you know, as a data analyst, actually building reports, writing extensive SQL queries, all of that good stuff um, to distribute to various NBA teams who were our clients. And through that, I made a lot of great connections in the NBA in both the media side and the team side, because um, even media clients, you know, I do some side projects for, you know, people like Zach Lowe or Chris Herring or, you know, so I made a lot of great connections with that job and then um, was lucky enough to land a job with the Raptors in 2017 in their front office as a data analyst. So basically doing the same job, um, but now just for one team. And spent two years in the front office as a data analyst and then actually transitioned to the coaching side for two years um, in 2019 and spent two years as an assistant coach on the bench and also got to spend two months in the G League bubble. So I got a lot of different exposures and experiences in an NBA organization in like a fairly short amount of time um, in four years. And yeah, it's just it, it's given me a really unique perspective on um, the game, the you know, how an organization runs and, and how to use um, analytics and decision making. So. Actually, I had forgotten that you were you were you were also in the G League bubble. So that's 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 quite the yeah. whirlwind. Um, I think one of the reasons you're you're a great person to talk to about this is a question that I get a lot uh, is okay. So how do you communicate this to players? And my answer is like, well, I didn't. Um, <laughs> you you actually had that experience. Um, so um, you know, obviously the, the 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 interface with doing it was probably minimal when you're in the front office but as a, on the coaching staff it was much more so yeah. how does that actually work i mean it's a very basketball is a very different sport in terms of passing along statistical information than say baseball so i've always thought that like just get out of the way and you know kind of let the coaches figure out how to get this hand get this information useful for players so you were the coach who was doing that. So how did that work? Yeah, well, you make a great point. I think um, particularly in basketball, even still, it's it's a pretty delicate thing um, to just, you know, go and you, you don't just want to just go and throw numbers at players. Um, I think it was a combination of things for me. One, we had a really great group of players, um, you know, really open to this sort of feedback and interested in, in getting better in as many ways as they could. So they were, you know, looking for different information and out of the box, you know, ways of learning. And, um, you know, even when I was in the front office, I got to spend a little time on the court, whether it was just rebounding, helping out passing, whatever, you know, a lot of our player development coaches would often ask me to help out because they needed extra bodies. They knew that I played and, and could help out. So, just forming those little bonds with the players first, um, building that layer of trust that like, hey, <laughs> I'm here to help you and make you better. Um, I don't have any, you know, ulterior motives here. Like, I'm here to make you better and help you. Um, I know the game. I can talk the game with you. Um, establishing that layer first is really important. And eventually, like once players 
would understand sort of what else I was doing behind the scenes as far as like building data-driven reports and giving data-driven recommendations to the decision makers in the organization, like they would actually approach me. <laughs> and I didn't have to do a lot of like approaching the players and saying like, hey, look at this, you need to look at this, um, which actually, you know, really worked in my favor. And once the players approached me, it was like very easy. Um, and always, if and when I would present, you know, some sort of information to them, um, I would lead with the language that they speak in most fluently, and that is watching video. So um, I would never just, you know, send uh, a report um, with, with numbers and whatever, even if it's in a pretty graph, like I would never do that. I would always um, integrate it with video somehow um, or lead with video. And again, that sort of made the players feel like, you know, this wasn't some sort of surveillance mechanism, like you giving me my numbers or whatever. It was like, no, I'm a part of this. This is mine and I own it. And now I can have a discussion with you about it. And so it was really just like a mindset thing. Um, but it was very delicate and it takes, you know, experience in building those relationships and whatnot and understanding where the players are coming from and maybe having been in their shoes at one point, you know, <laughs> how to sort of build that trust and that foundational relationship. I, yeah, I wanted to ask about that just in terms of I, I, this. I mean, I, you know, I, I played at a, a lesser level. I played at a D3 school, so not on the same level. But, you know, at least with the coaching staff, you, 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 know, you play pickup with them. Okay, you know something. You're not just – did you find that that was, that was an easy – like when the play, if a player or a, a coach, like, found out about, you know, okay, okay, she, she played four years of D1. She knows what she's about. Was that, was that sort of an instance icebreaker? I think so, and I, I have mixed feelings about it. <laughs> um, I felt grateful that I was able to, you know, kind of showcase, like, my experience in that way. Um, but I don't necessarily think that's required for somebody to do this job well. Um, it's just for me, like, the time and place. Like, it, it did work for me. It did help me. Um, and I think, too, especially, you know, not just being female, but being very young and being oftentimes like one of the youngest people in the room. Um, like th there's always this perception for young, younger people in, in the league, I think that they don't have a lot of experience yet or they need to like put in their time. Um, so being able to show that like I have put in time and you know, this sort of way, um, I'm not just here with zero experience was really, really beneficial for me. So you, this is something that you've talked uh, talked about publicly. Some though, uh, do you, I mean, can you you know, uh, sort of expand on the point about it it not being necessary and and almost it being treated as being necessary um, is is limiting in in some ways. Yeah, you know, um, I I've spoken about this before in sort of a different light, not just with analytics, but. Um, or being in sort of a more of a technical role, but um, even like female coaches, if you really, if you really look around at not just the NBA but any league, any level, um, if you look at the majority of female coaches, um, a lot of them, if not all of them, <laughs> played at a really high level. Um, like that's almost a necessary like prerequisite to becoming a coach as a female. And if you look at a lot of the men in the same space, like a lot of them actually didn't play at a high level. Um, and that just goes to show you, like, 
it's not a it's not a requirement. You don't need this specific experience to be good at this other thing because um, there are a lot of really really great, smart, excellent, wonderful, you know, male coaches out there and <laughs> that didn't play. And so um, it's just really interesting that you know sometimes um, certain subsets of people are expected to have a certain level of experience and something to be qualified when when others are not. And so. Um, yeah, it's just something I think about a lot. I think it did help me in my specific case, but I, I personally, having been through it and um, you know knowing what it takes, sort of, I don't, I don't think it's um, absolutely necessary to have played at a high level to do that job well. At the same time, I, I mean, again, you you talked about the language, and I think that this is this is something that that's a learned skill that that you you learned through your playing experience. But I do think that's that's a place that communication of of yeah. things in in the proper language is I think it's fair to say you know you I, I think you you probably see as much of like public work as as I do and if you were to have if I don't know if you agree with this but I think if you were to have one sort of overarching criticism of a lot of the public work it's the lack of that the lack of 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 putting it in like the correct vernacular oh yeah like Playing the game at a high level certainly gives you a deeper understanding. Um, you know the little intricacies, terminologies, um, you know the gray areas of the game um, that aren't so black and white. Like it, it certainly gives you a, a deeper look into that. Um, which is a bullshit detector. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, that's definitely there. Like, can you learn those things without playing? I think so. But I think to your point sort of building the relationships with the players and specifically the people who will be making decisions at the end of the day. Um, like, there's some sort of, I don't know, light bulb that goes off in those people's heads when they can see that you've lived this experience in some fraction of a way that they're living right now and that you're not just coming at them or, you know, you're not just coming at an angle that's um, very foreign or like there's some sort of relatability there. And I think that really helps. Is the, are there any, any particular players that you would, you would, you would kind of single out as you had, you know, a great communicative rapport with uh, in, in your, in your time with, with the Raptors and, and, you know, it, it, to the extent that, you know, not, not trying to get you to, you know, talk out of school or anything like that, but any sort of examples of, of kind of how that worked and, and, and how it sort of helped both the player and the team? Yeah, there were, there were a few. Um, like I mentioned, we had a really, really great group. Um, one top of mind is, is Mark Gasol. He was, um, you know, <laughs> I was actually the first person he interacted with on the basketball side um, when he was traded. So the team was on the road. I was working in the front office at the time, and he needed to first go to Toronto and get his physical done before meeting the team in New York. So I was working in the front office and was really the only one around that had had any like on-court experience, and Mark wanted to get a workout in before he left and, and met the team. And um, essentially I was asked, like, hey, you want to – put him through a quick workout before he goes. And I was like, me, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, of course. Um, that's amazing. Of course. Yes. So I was actually the first person he interacted with on the basketball side. And, um, I think it really, you know, it started a great relationship. Um, we still talk to this day. He's one of my favorite players I've ever coached. He's just like a really incredible person. Um, but he was one that was very interested in, you know, a lot of the work I was doing on the analytics side, um, and was, you know, asking for information a lot 
and just had a really curious mind about it and how it could help him. Um, and so we had a lot of dialogue around those things. And again, I would always, you know, um, complement it with some sort of video or um, something that he was very familiar with. Um, and he eventually, like, you know, he, he would ask, start asking me questions or, like, using terminologies that we're, we've been trying to get, you know, we were trying to get coaches and players thinking about, like, points per possession, you know, all of these things for a long time. And now it's, like, actually in his everyday language. Um, and, yeah, it was just really great, even from a player development standpoint. He would, you know, when he's doing a shooting workout, like, he would want to know what's my average arc and my short, long, left, right. And then he'd want to, like, gamify it and interact with the data in a way that was fun and engaging and, like, again, not a surveillance mechanism, but, like, something that he could own and make his own. Um, so, yeah, he's, he's one that sticks out to me for sure. And I think with the, with the shooting stuff, there's, there's, there's a number of technologies, and I don't, I, I don't remember which one you guys were using at the time and don't want to give free product plugs to anyone anyway. Um, <laughs> but, no, there's the, there's the, you know, the, the shooting software that, that, that gives, like, immediate auditory feedback on stuff like that, which I think is, is a tremendous teaching tool. Yeah, so, so we were using that, um, but some players, like, really hated it. And, and some, um, again, because if you just turn the machine on and they were just getting this auditory feedback with no real goal or objective, um, it did feel like they were just being monitored or, like, you know, it was a little intimidating. But if you actually gamified it and said, like, okay, you have to make this many out of ten, but it has to be within this range of, you know, arc or short, long or whatever it is you're working on, um, and then you make it a game and you make it competitive, like then the players want to interact with it, you know, and then it's like, oh, they don't even realize it, but they're using data to help themselves. You know, I don't even, I need to intervene rarely because like they can teach themselves and it's amazing, you know, like if they need like technical assistance with their shot or whatever, like that's when I intervene. But for the most part, they can um, teach themselves just based on the feedback they're getting every shot. I mean, that, that, the ability to do that is, is a big part of why they're NBA players. Absolutely. Oh, that's, a, that's actually a great segue to something I wanted to talk about. And that, that's sort of, I think, if there is a, in my mind, a key place where the bridge from sort of analytics to coaching or, or kind of more qualitative areas of basketball is most difficult, it's separating process from results. Mm. Um, and this is, you know, this is especially true on defense. Like, oh, they made the shot. We must have played bad defense. Or we missed the shot. We must have played good defense. Like, I, I'm not sure I have a question. Just would you, <laughs> would you agree with that? Would you agree with that assessment? Or is, is that something that, that came a little more naturally? I absolutely agree with that assessment. Um, I think about it all, t- all the time, about how can we better objectively assess the process and not the outcome. Um, and even in things like player development, you know, I think oftentimes we evaluate, um, and I say we like generally, <laughs> um, people in basketball tend to evaluate whether or not, you know, a player is developing or getting better or going in a certain trajectory based on their outcome data, which is like their game data, what they do in games. Um, and I think it's a little more complicated than that. It's a little more complex, layered than that. What we're not talking about is like what they're doing in the practice gym, you know, in, in film sessions, like all of these other things. Um, we don't really have 
a great way at this point to sort of evaluate and measure, like, are these things working, you know? Um, and, and eventually, like, how much time will it take for it to translate to the game? Um, it's just, you know, a deeper layer of, uh, yeah, evaluating the process and not simply the outcome. And even, and not just on a, on a player standpoint, but on sort of a, a, you know, a scouting evaluation thing. This is, you know, I, I still live in Milwaukee, and so you get the, you get the, um, you know, anytime a team hits a bunch of jump shots against the Bucks, it's like, oh, drop coverage, blah, blah, blah. And just, and, <laughs> and sort of, you know, getting past that to like, okay, but how we, did we, did we talk about how they win by 30 anytime an opponent shoots like 34% or less from three? Like, is, is that part like yeah. getting past the, the, I guess the emotion, the emotionality of the results? Yeah. And even thinking about what, the drop coverage is preventing, you know, like, the, right. you know, like, like you, you know what it, it is allowing and oftentimes what ends up happening, but like, what about the, all the things you're taking away? Um, nobody really talks about that. And it's also very difficult to measure. <laughs> How, like, it's, it's, I mean, it's the problem with defense in general. How do you measure what didn't happen? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, got a, uh, re- uh, regular listener, uh, Abdul Rahman has a, has a great question in comments and, uh, he asked, is it better to use analytics terminology or just say good, bad, do that, don't do that when you communicate with coaches and players? That's a great question. I think it's dependent on the case. Um, but in general, I would say speaking in the language that whoever you're talking to is most familiar with is always better. Um, and I think that's part of the the art of the sort of like liaison role that, I don't know, some teams have, some teams don't. But the person basically translating the data um, from the analytics room to the coaching staff or the players, um, it really is that. It's, it's You're really translating. <laughs> like you, you are really taking one language and translating it into another language um, so that the person or people using that information can actually digest it in a way that they can conceptualize. So um, the more you can start you know, integrating the two languages, I think, the better eventually, but um, at this point in time, I would say being able to translate it is very important. I mean, I think, like, you know, the one of the, the, the most studied areas of basketball is, like, shooting. Like, and and shot quality is a, getting quality shots is a thing, is a concept that existed long before we had tracking data. Oh, like, yeah. Get good shots, don't let the opponent get good shots. So, like, turning the metric you're using into that and vice versa is is sort of if once you do that you've kind of won yeah totally agree and like i think speaking in shot quality turn like points per possession points per shot whatever true shooting whatever you want to you know call it um it does add a little color to like good shot bad shot and you know whatever and so you can start incorporating more detail on top of good shot bad shot at whatever point that you know is comfortable, but I wouldn't lead with that. So how do you, so the, um, what I think one of the most frustrating experiences for people coming from a data perspective is like in any model is going to be wrong. Sometimes uh, you know, <laughs> all models are wrong. Some are useful and sometimes they're going to be very wrong in like a weird kind of edge case scenario. Um, those situations, like it seems like, well, it says this, everything you say is BS. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a common one that uh that I've gotten that a lot of people I know have gotten um 
Yeah, sort of keeping the integrity of like, well, what is if this information is not 100% correct, then how can I trust anything you say? Um, I think being really careful about the information you eventually present and, you know, pass forward to decision makers um, is important. So not passing everything through, but really filtering out what do we know for certain that, you know, we can stand on and, and back with even with video, like I think that's a crucial tool i keep saying that to use but like if if the information you're presenting is in question like having video evidence to back it up um is really really helpful so if, if you can't even get to that point with some you know certain information um i wouldn't even like present it at all to be honest that, that gets you in trouble when you're when you're when like in specific instance i can think of it's like a player value model a player projection model and there's, there's someone who has an unusual aging curve who's aged unusually well. And mm. it's just like the model, but the model hates them because, well, he's 38 years old. Therefore his performance is, is projected to drop X, Y, and Z. It's like, well, this is, this is nonsense. Yeah. And it's just like, well, I mean, we can't change the whole model for one guy, but we can't like not have him. We can't ha- not have him on the sheet also. So it's like that, that was always a, uh, like, ah, you know, you can try to, you do your best to sort of explain that. And then you just kind of, you know, duck and take the beating essentially. <laughs> that's right that's right luckily you know not luckily but i didn't have um as far as like uh player acquisition uh experience like describing with the model saying and stuff like i didn't have to do a ton of that i was more so um focused on our own team and and you know relaying information to coaches but i can imagine that was one that uh was difficult to navigate <laughs> uh, yeah it's it, it's it, I do find it funny that like one like you know a, a uh, if if a if a scout misevaluates a player once or if, if like like someone mistags a play because it was ambiguous, that isn't disqualifying. But it, anyway, yeah, it's, yeah, <laughs> rabble, rabble. Mm-hmm. Um, let me see. I um, I guess uh, like I don't know if there's a natural segue, but I think that uh, you know. He, you know, you're, you're, you talked about, you know, player development. And I think that that ties in a little bit with, with what, what you're doing now. And I do have, I have some questions around player development. I have uh, Doug Lamov uh, coming on next week, who's literally written a book about this kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. um, I, there's a lot that's been written about player development in baseball. And again, I, th- I think it's just easier because it's, it's largely physical, repetitive skill development. Whereas, like basketball is so much about decision making and mm. I don't know how to train that. I don't, I don't even, I like, or I don't know the, the, the sort of a scientific way to evaluate that. Like, what are your thoughts on kind of that area? Yeah. Well, um, speaking of Doug Lamov, his book, the coach's guide to teaching is like my Bible on this specific topic of discussion. So, um, <laughs> he has so many good gems in there about this exact thing. Um, and, and really, you know, when it comes to player development, like you said, it's, it's difficult at this point in time to evaluate, um, is a player making the most optimal decision at a high rate, you know, in a specific scenario or in general? Um, people often forget, too, in basketball, like, very, you know, what we tend to think of, like, as isolated skills, like shooting and ball handling, um, shooting is a decision skill. Like, when you get in a game, you have to decide... Do I shoot? Do I not? And then you actually have to shoot, right? So it's like you have to first see, is this, what's the situation? And then you have to decide, do I shoot? Do I not? And then you have to act. And so 
all the biomechanical, you know, uh, development projects we talk about with shooting is only like the third part of actually what shooting takes, you know, in a game. So um, the decision-making key is, is like so important. And on defense, it's like even, you know, there's so many use cases, scenarios where we can talk about decision-making. Um, but yet when you sit in a room full of talent evaluators, a lot of them only talk about the physical attributes relating to defense. He has, you know, this wingspan, his hands are this big, his lateral foot speed is this fast. That's all great, but you have to be able to read the floor and, and understand when, um, you know, pick and roll defense. Like, when do I, you know, stay on two? When do I go back to my own? When do I, like, there's so many things you have to do from a visual cue standpoint um, to decide, you know, uh, what do I do? And then you have to go do it. So it's just really, really fascinating to me. I think um, it's something that isn't emphasized enough in player development. And I've done a lot of reading and research on it over the past year and a half, I would say. Um, and I'm, I'm still learning, and, and but you know, I feel like I've learned a lot, even in that short amount of time. A lot of it thanks to Doug's book, um, and even conversations with Doug. I've been lucky enough to have a couple conversations with him about this stuff, but um, it's super fascinating, and I think that organizations sort of need to start investing more resources into this sort of evaluation because it's crucial to the sport of basketball. And just, you know, to be, you know, kind of ruthless dollars and cents, like, you know, okay, we're, we're getting to the point where knowing who is, who are, who are the good and bad players? Like, mm-hmm. we're, we have a pretty good handle on that at that point. The next wave is like, okay, who can we, who can become a good player? And, right. you know, you, I think you work for one of the, the organizations that is based on results has been best at that at this over the last number of years. I mean, I think, you know, the short list probably starts with the Raptors and the Heat and whoever mm-hmm. else you want to throw in there. Um, and I like I don't I, like obviously I'm not going to ask you what's the secret sauce that the Raptors know. <laughs> and it's I mean it's there's the question of like is it better evaluation of who is going to be the best learner or better techniques for learning or both. Um, these are it's a whole ball of of unknowns from my perspective. Yeah, you know I think. Um, obviously trying to evaluate, you know, what is this player's quote-unquote potential? I hate that word, but <laughs> yeah, their ability to learn and how quickly they're able to learn. Um, you know, that's something you try to evaluate in, you know, whether it's intel, um, whether you actually do, you know, draft workouts that have specific drills designed for that, whether it's interviews with the player. Um, there's a lot of different ways you can hopefully try and evaluate that. Um, but I think you touched on this. I think a really important part of this, too, is from a coaching perspective, evaluating ourselves as coaches, um, are we teaching in a way that's optimal for our players to retain information? You know, I think what's the average tenure for a player in the NBA on one team, like a year and a half, two years? Um, so that's a lot of information for a player to accumulate and act on in a short amount of time especially if the player is new to the league, new to the team. Um, You know, it's just, it's a lot. And so um, to optimize on that player's development and their skill acquisition, like we have to evaluate as coaches and as teachers, uh, you know, is the way, are the ways that we're teaching, are our methods um, optimal for learning? Are we shortening the gap between what we're teaching and what they're learning and what they're translating into a game? Um, and being more intentional about that, both in practices and just individual skill sessions, like 
what are we working on for what amount of time? Is it, you know, are we replicating as much as we can, replicating a game, giving them the visual cues they need um, to translate this into a game? And are we, um, you know, doing things like um, retrieval practice with our, with our players, like making sure they forget the information for a while, then come back and retrieve it, because that will encode it into their long-term memory. Um, these are all super interesting questions, and, and I think, you know, we don't, we don't spend enough time on them at this point. And especially the additional complicating factor is that, like, there are a, a variety of learning styles among yes. players as there are people. So, like, it's not just are we doing the best, are we doing the best for this particular player, or are we doing the best for our group of players overall, given their composition of learning styles. It's a, like, it, it makes my brain hurt to think yeah. about. Like, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, some players... Obviously, they, they ingest film really easily, and, and some players do not. Some players need to walk through it. You know, there's, there's a variety of learning styles. Um, and like you said, we need to take all of them into account, when we, especially when we evaluate this. Uh, Abdul Rahman has, has another great question, and then, then we'll get to sort of what, what, you're, what, what you're working on, on these days. Um, how do you deal with new concepts that change in the game when you don't have time to dig into them because you, you have to win the next game? This is, to me, this is one of the uh, best parts about, the, the, the biggest selling parts about working outside a team versus inside a team, is having the time to stop and examine those kind of things. And you just don't, with, like, on the inside. Yeah, do they mean, like, league trends that might be happening or things other teams are doing that, we, you know, if you're in the midst of a season, like, game to game, you don't have time to investigate? Like either either league trends or you just kind of you figure Eureka, I figured out how to model this. Oh. Yeah. Right. Like yeah, improving your own models and, and yeah. all of that. Um Yeah, that's 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 difficult to to balance. Um and within an organization I think it's important to have people who do both. People who are like designated and dedicated to the grind of the day to day and then other people who are focused more on um long-term projects, so to speak. As, as a practical matter, most organizations don't balance. Right. It's, it's very, it's, it is much more tomorrow's game. Things have to work. Like, not a lot of time for sort of un, like, research that could fail is basically oh, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, the time for that is like, do I want to do these research projects or do I want to take a vacation? And yeah. I, I know which one wins every time. Absolutely. There's not a lot of room for experimentation. And that's across the board um, in professional sports. I think like even in coaching, for instance, like there are a lot of um, cool, like, I don't know, there's, there's times like when I was coaching, I was like, I want to go just watch a bunch of European basketball for the next two months and figure out like how to beat a zone because <laughs> like that's where I'm going to learn, you know, and I just didn't have the time. And um, yeah, I think it's important to, like I said, maybe have a subset or subgroup of people in the organization dedicated to those things because they are important like having that sort of bird's eye view and pulling ideas from other sources and all of that um, is super important for creativity and efficiency in the long run sure so i th th thank thank you again for the question after rockman he's he, he he listens to basically every show live despite <laughs> being halfway around the world and always amazing questions um so in terms of, of what you're doing now, first of all, you're, you're, you're coaching in the Canadian League. Um, but the, the thing I wanted to ask about is uh, Strata Athletics. What is that and what, uh, what, uh, yeah, tell, just tell me more about that. 
Yeah, for sure. So um, it was last September, I believe, I was approached by really a mentor of mine. He's been in my life for a while. He was a basketball coach of mine about a decade ago um, and then was present in my life, you know, at basketball camps, particularly one called Point Guard College, which he's the director of curriculum at um, and has been for the last decade. So um, he approached me and, you know, he knew that I'd recently left the NBA and um, was just like, hey, I, I, I have a friend of mine who's willing to invest in this sort of project that we've envisioned, but we, we're, we're missing something. We're, we're, we, we need another piece added to get this project off the ground and, and sort of described it to me um, as a youth sports program that really prioritizes learning and development and enjoyment <laughs> over, you know, competition and performance. And as you know, in the, yeah, <laughs> right? Can you imagine? Yeah. Um, you do doing something for the kids, not the parents? Right. Yes. That's exactly what we're doing. Um, yeah. So as you know, like in the United States specifically, youth sports has gotten a little out of hand, let's say. Um, to put it lightly, there's, you know, they're ranking eight-year-olds across the country now. It's incredibly expensive to play basketball specifically. It's, you're, you're traveling to tournaments every weekend. You're... Um, you know, it's shuffling teams and coaches like super frequently. And what we're seeing is like a lot of kids are dropping out of sports by the time they're in high school, like 70% of kids actually. And uh, that affects girls um, astronomically more than boys. And a lot of the reasonings, which are not surprising, are, you know, pressure to perform, um, burnout, injury, and then the most important one to me is like misguided coaching and just poor coaching um, and coaches who are yelling and screaming and putting pressure in, and the parents are following suit. And so there's pressure from the parents. Yeah, the parents are the worst. Yeah. I mean, so if you've been to an AAU tournament lately, like I, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's out of control. So we're trying to turn that on its head and um, focus, refocus uh, the objective back to learning and development and having fun and, and enjoying um, playing sport. And at the same time, um, you know, we have very qualified professional coaches. So it's not just, um, you know, parents coming and coaching with not a little experience, not just in basketball, but like little experience um, teaching and communicating with, you know, 10 to 14 year olds um, in this way. So, um, yeah, we're trying to to solve a lot of problems at once, but honestly, it's it's been really rewarding. We just had our first program um, in the spring, and we got some really really great feedback. Um, we're really incentivizing and uh, teaching like what we call intangibles throughout our curriculum. So, um, you know, we we call it like EQ. Like, how do you respond to your mistakes? Are you making eye contact with your coaches when they're teaching? Are you being a good teammate? Are you communicating? All of these things, um, we're trying to use sport, obviously, as a vessel to um, develop life and leadership skills as well. Um, just uh, like a side question on that is, is this is this is you know how do you avoid like a Godhart's law situation when if you're you know like you know the the where something like that you, like you get the form but not the substance. If you're okay, must make eye contact, kind of. You know, well, well, you had ten eye contacts today, so, but it, but it maybe just doesn't mean as much because it's, because it's, it's, it becomes too conscious. Yeah, um, it's, it's an inter interesting question, and we're trying to, honestly, still figure that out. Um, 
how to best do that and balance it. But but really, it's like instead of telling the kids what they're not doing, we really really celebrate like the behaviors that we want to see. So um, it's it's really funny. It's like a psychology experiment, really, because well, no, this sounds like the parenting handbooks my 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 wife yeah. uh, <laughs> wants me to read. Yeah, but it's it's just really interesting, and you notice like. Like, even as basketball people, we know that these things do matter to some degree. Um, it, it is related to performance, like whether or not you handle, you can handle adversity or whether or not you, you know, are, are somebody that people like playing with. You know, these things, like, they matter. We haven't been able to, like, objectively measure how much they matter, but they matter. And so we really are trying to, um, yeah, incentivize, celebrate when, when our you know, kids do those things, but then also show them why, you know, why when you turn the ball over and instead of drooping, you, you know, double clap and sprint back on defense, like why that actually impacts the game and your performance and your teammates performance. Like why, why does it matter? Some um, Jason Tatum. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So <laughs> like these are things and, you know, it, like we, we think that this approach we're obviously teaching basketball too. You know, we, we have again professional coaches. They all played professionally or collegiately. They've all been coaches, like all of these things. But if we're intertwining these other, you know, um, social and emotional skills into it, um, we also think it's a better approach to like on court performance too. You know, we think it's like all encompassing. So, um, yeah, it's it's you know you, if you I mean to use an, an analogy, you don't hit a golf ball farther by squeezing tighter. Exactly. Yeah. Um, just like a question on this, and you you talked about like the over the over focus on competition. Um, what age should we start keeping score? That's a great question. I think there was a uh, is it Norway? Am I thinking of the right country? That I think they literally don't like it's like I don't know if it's illegal, but there's some sort of government limitation on like they don't start keeping score until the kids are like twelve or thirteen. Um, I think it's Norway. I have to now. I'm. I, I'm pretty sure that's the country, but there's a it's, lot. Like, Scandinavia sounds right. Is it? Yeah, I think it's Norway. Um, but there's a lot we can learn, honestly, from the way uh, the European model of, of youth sports and sort of these academy-like um, ways that they do things. You know, we're, we're almost trying to replicate that. It's a little difficult because the structure here is so different. But um, can there be continuity from the time a kid is eight to the time they're 14 with, you know, the terminology they're exposed to and the approach to development and, like, the coaches they have, like, can that be familiar and continuous throughout, you know, those very crucial times of their life? Um, and that's how they do it in Europe. But, yeah, that's a great question. Like, I, I don't hate the idea of keeping score, but there needs to be an objective tied to it. Like, this is why we're... Because we, we do compete within our program. We don't go out and play in tournaments, but we, like, within, you know, our, our sessions, we have games and we have, you know, it, there is a competitive aspect. Competition is very crucial to sport, <laughs> but um, it's just the objective of it is very clear, and um, we, are, we are encouraging our players to make mistakes and feel comfortable taking risks and all of those things where, like, if they don't, you know, if they mess up or they make a mistake, they're not going to be punished for it. <laughs> it's, I mean, it, I mean, I, I agree with, I mean, the competition is important, but I mean, th th maybe this is, I don't know if it's a uniquely American, but I think it's an especially American problem that as soon as you keep score, like, 
somebody's going to go win at all costs. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, someone's going to say, well, eight, eight, uh, you know, eighth graders can't handle the press, so we're going to press. Just like, <laughs> okay, that's, that's fine. You won, but nobody got better at basketball. Yeah, but you, what you're describing is like a coach problem. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what we're, we're very intentional about. Like we're, we handpick our coaches. We have, a, you know, we have coaches training. This is how we want to teach. These are the things we're going to do. Um, and they have the freedom to be themselves um, as coaches, but you know we have a framework, and also like we have a parent sort of education. Like we we lay out to the parents like these are our expectations. This this is what we're holding you guys accountable to as parents. And half the time we don't even let the parents come. <laughs> so you know we're still kind of experimenting with that too. Like do we allow them to come because we want them to see the progress and the results, but like also we don't want them to be a distraction. Make a big show of kicking parents who are assholes out of out of the yeah, <laughs> like, right. Like give your red card for parents. It's like <laughs> right, right. So yeah, it's been really rewarding. Um, we're looking to have a fall season uh, in September, so um, we're running it back, and um, hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll grow. Well, that I mean, that sounds. I mean, to me, that sounds amazing because I think that I think that that's like again the the. I think it, it, you know, I think you probably have seen, you know, some of the downstream effects of that, you know, even at the professional level, frankly, oh, yeah. in terms of, of, uh, um, uh, um, uh, PD Webb calls it academy brain, um, <laughs> where it's, it's sort of, you've learned these like rote things and you kind of play by that on top of which, like just the sort of the wear on, on, you know, bodies of, of kind of this intense competition, with too much frequency over the course of many many years while bodies are still developing. Yeah. I mean, we we totally encourage our athletes to be multi-sport. We actually eventually want to expand and and have other sports within our program, not just basketball to re, to you know emphasize that ideology, but totally agree. Well, I will I will I will pitch and say that uh, that a great uh, sport to especially do in summer months when you can go outside is uh, is is ultimate Ultimate oh safety. yeah, I think that's uh, that, is, that is. I can, it's from experience. I think that that like helped me see the floor better as a basketball player. But I love that. Also, I have to. I, maybe sure. you don't know about this. What is this new craze with pickleball? Have you noticed this? I don't know. <laughs> have you noticed it's, it? Yeah. I mean, I kind of get it, but is it just because like you can play until you're eighty? Is that really the the appeal? I don't know. It seems like we get a new one of these every couple of years. Like it was, <laughs> it was, it was cornhole, and then it was axe throwing, and like and spike, ball. Ball, spike ball, spike ball, yeah. Ball. Spike ball on the beach is amazing. Spike ball on the grass hurts. Um, oh yeah. I mean, I'm a full <laughs> supporter of spike ball. I love spike ball, but I don't know. Pickleball is a little. I don't know. Maybe the tennis players like it more. I don't yeah. know. I mean, it, was just, <laughs> it seems like it's been going on for a while. Like you, you know, I, it's, you go back to like the mid '80s. You see like. You know the old Miami Vice shows, and like Highlight was like the big thing, <laughs> yeah. which is basically like it's it's, a, it's sports straight out of Tron, basically. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, we'll see what's next after pickleball. Yeah. Um, well, we've we've certainly uh, gone much much further afield than I than I planned on going in this conversation, but uh, <laughs> I want to. I'm I'm really glad we were finally able to do this. I, I, I as I always do when when we chat, I enjoyed the conversation and I. Uh, appreciate you coming on and uh and you know sharing your experiences and wisdom of course thanks for having me on and thanks for uh, being persistent in uh in asking me to be on i promise next time i won't take as long to commit not to say pushy of course that's right that's I, right i definitely veered into that area so. uh, <laughs> but uh, th- thanks again thanks folks for listening uh i'm that's that's 
last show for this week. I am back next week, I believe on Tuesday, uh, with Doug Lamoff, who we, uh, it, it's, uh, I think it just worked out that way. Uh, and then I'll have a, have a couple more, uh, kind of more, um, back to the sort of uh, technical analysis of basketball. Um, some of the trends of the playoffs that, uh, that, uh, some, some folks saw, uh, we'll get back to that next week, but until then, uh, thank you for listening and, uh, take care. <laughs>